0: Today we're going to be reading from Hosea chapter 13, verses 12 through 15, and you can find this on page 1377 of the Pew Bibles. The guilt of Ephraim is stored up, his sins are kept on record, pains as of a woman in childbirth come to him, but he is a child without wisdom. When the time arrives, he doesn't have the sense to come out of the womb. I will deliver this, from, this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O oh death, are your plagues? Where, O oh grave, is your destruction? I will have no compassion, even, among, even though he thrives among his brothers. An east wind from the Lord will come, blowing from the desert. His spring will fail and his well dry up. His storehouses will be plundered of all its treasures. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 58, which is on page 1751 of the Pew Bibles. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain.
1: Thanks, Ruby. Good morning, everyone. Hopefully you've come to celebrate the resurrection of the Christ and not to hear me attempt to preach only a 15-minute sermon. (laughs) Both appear to be miracles in these days. The first much greater. Um, I want to give a trigger warning to pregnant women who may soon be delivering. Um, I may say some things that may bother you. At the back of every pew Bible is taped a single Valium pill that you're welcome to take if you'd like. Um... (laughs) So that's not true if you're looking. Um, (laughs) The passage we read in 1 Corinthians ends with this. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor for the Lord is not in vain. Doesn't that make it sound hard? It sounds like it's going to be hard when somebody says, listen, don't let anybody move you. Don't, don't give up. Whatever you do, like, in, and always give yourself fully to the work you're supposed to be doing, because it's not in vain. If you're like, it's not in vain, that makes it sound like it's going to be pretty hard. And the answer is, it's because it is. Right? There's no place in Scripture where God says, listen, if you come to me, your life is going to be easy. It doesn't say anywhere. Now, he does say, if you come to him, certain things about your life will be easier. Right? Our abuse of ourselves— becomes less. Like, we we don't hurt ourselves to sin as much, right? That's true, but we're still in the same lot as everybody else. We live under the same curse. It says in Jeremiah 29 that we're dispersed like exiles among cities of people who don't acknowledge the Lord, and so whatever fate they make for themselves, they're making for us, and we're going to share with them. Does that make sense? Whatever fate Madison makes for itself, we're going to share with Madison. doesn't matter that we're Christians. It's going to happen to us, too. Does that make sense? Um, We're not told that we won't get diseases like everybody else. There's nothing fundamental other than the escape from sin, that we can live by wisdom. But when we do that, we will be taught to love others, which means we will welcome all of their junk into our lives, and we will be continually opening the circle of junk bringers inners (laughs) because of love. There's no sense in no way in which coming to Christ makes our suffering less. The fundamental change is that in Taking the victory from death and the resurrection of the Christ, God transfers or makes possible for us to go from a people of unproductive suffering to a people of productive and glorifying suffering. That's the difference. You understand? In this life. Now, in the next, it says, God will wipe every tear from our eyes and take away our shame and all the things that we fear. But in the present, the difference is the difference in the kind of suffering. And that in reversing the victory of death, the result of that is that he can reverse our unproductive to productive suffering. Your life is going to have suffering. It's going to. Probably does right now. Might have more tomorrow, might have less tomorrow. It ebbs and flows. The question is, is how productive will it be? And I want you to notice this, because it will, in the passage that Ruby just read out of Hosea, right, The infliction of suffering that God does of Hosea, of the people of Ephraim, staying in unproductive sin is him producing even natural disaster-based suffering for them to be taught to recognize that they had to turn him. So God lays the the net of suffering very wide in in terms of the different types we may have to grapple with. Right? So the first thing to look at here is, is that death was the presumptive victor and stinger for all of humanity, for all of time, And when death has the sting and the victory, it makes our suffering tragic and vain. Like, one of the worst things about suffering is when it's for nothing, right? Like, I could put up with a lot for something, right? Anybody who's a parent, right? Like, you could put up with a lot. The point is you're gonna, you're gonna pass on new life to these creatures that exist for their own purpose, and then they're gonna go off and they're gonna have a life of their own, and that's really valuable. Not just what you're going to get out of it, but the thing itself is valuable, right? And that's worth it. You can put up with a lot, and you do put up with a lot, right? Same thing with your marriage, or your roommate, or your schooling, or your, almost your health, right? Like, why didn't I eat a whole carton of ice cream last night? Right? It's a form of suffering, a very privileged kind. Right? If we know that the suffering or the labor isn't in vain, like, we can be willing to do it, right? If we have a certain kind of character, if we're willing to care about something bigger than ourselves. The worst kind of suffering is when it's for nothing. In fact, I don't know about you, but like, if I find out that I was even slightly inconvenienced for nothing, it bothers me. I was just like, what did I get for that? Nothing. Right? Like some guy cuts me off just because he has to be like one second faster to the red light. And I'm like, you're a big dumb, you know, I'm sorry, Jesus. Like it's one of those—I'm like—and it wasn't because, you know, he wanted to get— It's like, for what? Like you literally just endangered three people's lives. For what? So you could burn fossil fuels faster? Have you seen how much they cost? (laughs) And it frustrates me when people sin in ways that produce suffering for themselves and others for apparently no purpose. Doing? It wasn't even fun. Right? Now, in 1 Corinthians, right, the apostle quotes these two Old Testament passages, Isaiah 25 and Hosea 13. But he says this: the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Now, sometimes we think of, of um, stings and victories as events. They're not events in the Bible, they're results. So in this context, a sting and a victory is a result. So if you have a fight with a wasp and it stings you, and you kill it, does the sting stop hurting right when you kill the wasp? It does not. See, you know what I'm talking about, right? Wouldn't that be cool? Is if, like, you got stung by a wasp, but if you killed the wasp, you automatically, the sting didn't hurt anymore? Yeah, it's not that way, right? It's also not that way in life, is it? You do something stupid, you repent, you say, I'm not going to do that anymore, but, like, there's some stuff that's already in motion. There's already a sting. You know what I'm saying? And you can't get rid of it. It's there. Right, And a victory is similar, right? If you have a battle, there's the fight. And after the battle's over, somebody won. They have the victory. They forever have the victory. Even if you come fight them the next day, that's another battle. Somebody else gets the victory, right? Every soccer game I ever played in high school, I either won or I lost. I am still the victor in every game I won, and I'm still the loser in every game I lost and will be forever. Does that make sense? In the Bible, sting and victory in these contexts are a context of A result, right? So the idea here then is is that death produces a result that is a sting or a result that is a victory. And it's important to recognize that God says in scripture everywhere that he believes this is the biggest problem in the world. The reason why the problem of suffering is the biggest block to people's faith is not because it is the most difficult objection to Christian faith. It is it's because it's the most likely alternative to what the biggest problem is. And when people allow themselves to believe that suffering is the biggest problem, then they can't believe that there is a bigger problem that makes suffering possible. And so they don't believe in God. It's not actually a philosophical win. It's a category confusion. God believes there's a fundamentally larger problem than suffering that substantiates and causes him to even use suffering to gain a larger, more substantial victory than getting rid of suffering. Most of us believe that if God waved his proverbial spiritual hand and got rid of all suffering in the world, that would make the world a fundamentally better place. What God argues throughout all the scriptures is that that is false. The result of wiping out all the suffering in the world would confirm most people in the stubbornness of their unbelief, because it is mostly just pain that causes us to face things, and facing God is the hardest thing to face. Turns out that it's mostly only pain that will get people to face things. For example, 20 years ago, the most likely reason somebody would visit church, especially on Easter Sunday, was because—anybody? Somebody invited them, right? Because we were still substantially enough a Christian nation, so to speak, that if you were like, hey, why don't you come to church? Be like, maybe I'll go to church. We should go to church. Let's go to church. We'll go to church on Sunday. There'll be flowers, you know? Right? Do you know what it is now? It's not that anymore. You can invite people to church, and oftentimes they'll say, No. Why? Because Christians are bad people now, so why would anybody want to come if you get invited to church, right? No. You know why people show up? Crisis. The number one reason people walk through those doors who don't naturally come every week because they believe by conviction is because they're suffering. That's why our greeters are supposed to be there 20 minutes after the service starts, to welcome people, because most people who are hurting don't come on time. They come late, and they leave early. Why? Because they don't want to talk to the human beings who actually— if you are one of those people, listen, these human beings are the people that God has provided to comfort you, care for you, and love you, so you have to stay and talk to them. <laughs> I mean, that's part of God's provision to care for you in your crisis is us. Sorry. <laughs> but, but we do love you and help us do it better. Um, but, you see, once the cultural veneer is taken away a little bit, What's the only thing even practically here in all of our wealth, and all of our medicine, with all of our doctors, with all of our technology that will drive people to actually come and grapple with the Lord? Right? Suffering. Your husband has to walk out on you. You have to get a cancer diagnosis. You have to lose your job. Right? You see, God believes that whatever death's sting is, whatever its victory is, is actually a bigger problem than all of the suffering on the planet. That's what he thinks. And here's the thing. He's right. Right? Basically, the argument is this. Remember, death has a sting, but death isn't. Just like the wasp isn't the sting, death isn't the sting. What scripture teaches is that sin is the sting. Now think about that for a second. How can death—that means sin is worse than death. The terrible result left by death is the sting of sin. What is that result? Right? Well, well, first he says, you got to remember the power of sin is the law, meaning this. The power that is in the sting of sin is not sin itself, but it's the fact that it puts itself up against the justice of Almighty God. Right? It walks into the courtroom courtroom, having willfully committed the crimes. What death does is just it makes sin permanent. It renders it. It takes the sinner—you and me— not just having done things that accrue guilt, but also still in the state of mind of being that kind of person and renders us permanently directly into the presence of judgment. And so it stings us permanently and horribly because we come in with all of the guilt and we have no opportunity left to make amends. We get rendered. And that is horrific. And what it means is that if death is personified as a destroyer, there can be no greater destruction than doing that to us. And therefore, it is its sting, and then proverbially, its victory. Now, just as God said that Ephraim, that is God's people, the northern kingdom of Israel, had stored up their sins, right? It's also true that um, God has endeavored to redeem and reverse this so that death, and all the suffering that goes along with it in human life is reversed—not just for Jesus, but for you, and not just the suffering of Jesus, but all of your suffering as well. That's his claim. That he can. Because think about this: Do you think that the Sanhedrin and the people who literally nailed Jesus to the cross were trying to produce the productive suffering of God? That after all their sneering and after all the stuff they did, they were like, "You don't know really gonna do. We're gonna help usher in." a new cosmic era of salvation so that all can be saved and all can experience joy in God's presence forever. No. What they were trying to do is to produce a suffering in the life of Jesus that was as unproductive as possible. They were trying to kill him, horrifically humiliate him, destroy his life, destroy his movement, destroy everything he'd ever done. They tried to think of everything Jesus had done productively and try to figure out how can we completely reverse every productive thing Jesus has ever done. And they're like, this is how we do it. We kill him through the humiliating Roman sacrifice of crucifixion, which is meant to say that he's a criminal. He shouldn't be listened to. If you follow him, he will kill you too, etc. So that everything productive he's ever done will be completely destroyed. You understand that? What that means is this. When God raises his Christ from the dead and builds a people of God for two millennia, what he's saying is, listen, it doesn't matter how unproductive people mean the suffering they bring into your life. It doesn't even matter how unproductive you meant the suffering you brought into your own life. God uses suffering productively. First, in the death and resurrection of his Christ, contrived in the most beautiful way that not even, not even the angels and the demons could have figured out before it happened. And secondly, in us, God is contriving to make your suffering and mine productive rather than unproductive. Think about this for a second. He says about them, he says, Ephraim's guilt is stored up. His sins are kept on record. So there's this problem of accrued guilt, but there's also a problem of stubbornness and willfulness. Their hearts are not given to righteousness. Their, their hearts are given to do whatever they want, right? Because it says, pains as of a woman in childbirth come to him, But he's like a child without wisdom. When he arrives, when the time arrives, he does not come to the opening of the womb. What does that mean, right? The wisdom of a child, right? The idea is is that in order for a birth to happen, for it to be joyful instead of tragic, right, is that the the woman's body and the child have to work together in a certain almost mysterious kind of way, where her body is preparing to move the child out, and the child has to get in a very specific position to get sent out. Everything can go right, but if that child doesn't get its head in the right location, we got problems, okay? This happened in my life, right? I've been present for five births. I do have four children. That's right. No, I, I mean, technically, I've been present for six because I was at mine, you know. But I've, I've seen <laughs> and remember five births, and um, most of them progressed just fine. The last one I was at did not progress just fine because the, the baby, instead of putting— her head where it was supposed to be, she put it, like, against my wife's pelvis bone, right? And she stayed there for several hours, you know? She is a willful creature. And so what happened was, is that my wife unproductively suffered for, like, four or five more hours. And so did my child. Like, she wasn't doing it on purpose. She just didn't understand how to make this thing turn into productive suffering rather than unproductive suffering. And so there it was, just unproductive until, until she was like, oh, I get it, and put her head in the right spot, and whoop, here we go. You understand? And you see what that's a metaphor of? It's a metaphor of you and I. Our lives are the woman, and our wills are the child. Do you understand? And so what happens, God is saying, is that our wills, and this is not just for non-Christians or backslidden Christians. This is for all people. Because when you come to Jesus, your will doesn't completely surrender to the Lord and follow him in everything. Do you understand? And so there's this dynamic constantly working in us. where, are like, we are going through this suffering. We can feel it. We know we're suffering. And we're like, why is this happening? Why can't I stop this? Why can't I move in the right direction? Why can't we have a new birth here of something better? And the answer is because your will will not bring the head to the opening. And because of it, instead of suffering productively into new birth and new life, which is still a necessary suffering, you're suffering unproductively. And the difference Jesus makes is not just that he redeems the record of sin, but he transfers the use of suffering to productive suffering through faith and repentance. He makes it possible that through faith and repentance, by the regeneration of the Spirit and the work of God and his revelation of wisdom, that like you can come to the opening and be born into new life. Why do you think in the New Testament? Jesus says, unless you're born again. You can't see the kingdom of God. Or Peter says it is by the new birth. Why do they use that metaphor of being born again or being birthed anew? Because the Lord used it 700 years before to save Israel, to call them to repentance and salvation. And in doing so, he does that for everybody, right? In every way, all the time. He's not just using the redemptive suffering of his Christ— He, in binding the cross and the empty tomb together, he's doing it in you and in I. We are walking in the way of the cross, in the life of the resurrection, and being transformed into ever-increasing glories, scripture says, by learning to walk with Christ so that he keeps using our suffering redemptively. There is no unredemptive suffering in Christ because even suffering that seems completely unredemptive still in itself glorifies God. So for example, if I was taken hostage in some nasty communist place and I was beat every day with a machine, so not, there wasn't even a person to beat me to see me not give up my faith to glorify God. There was a machine that couldn't be ministered to by my faithfulness that beat me in a room where I was alone. Scripture teaches that there is a testimony to the angels and demons, there is a communication of his worth to the soul of God himself of worship in my suffering, in that I simply bear it in faith. That every suffering, just as before, my sins were counted up irredemptively so that death would be a sting. Jesus has reversed this so that every suffering that I face in faith is counted up similarly, redemptively, for my glory in God's glorification. But what has to happen is every day and every way in all of our sufferings, you and I have got to get our heads to the opening. That's what it all comes down to. That's why salvation and damnation in Christianity are all of faith. It's not some fake thing where you say you believe in God, you can do whatever you want. Christian has never believed that. Jesus never believed it. Paul said that that was anathema, that if you believed that, you would definitely go to hell. No, it's all about belief. Will you bring the head to the opening and so turn the unproductive suffering of you and your neighbor and this world into the productive suffering that God can bring about in it if you believe? Will you believe that the sting of death is the greatest problem of the world and that God in his sovereignty can make suffering be contrived to be a handmaiden to its end and good? And it is that transition, that transaction, that death and resurrection that baptism points to, that communion faces, and that all our worship is based on. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would, you would help us to believe. That we would not just think, um, if we believe in this life, we will be added in the next, and that we just have to get through it but that we recognize that we can stand firm because everything that we do in giving ourselves to the labor that is in your name is not in vain. Not any of it. Remember you saying, not a single cup of cold water you give in my name will be forgotten. So, Father, help us to believe that you do stand sovereignly over every act, even the seeming random effects of natural disasters, and that you contrive your own purposes, and they will not make sense to us in our reckoning and by our perspective. But help us to embrace the joy of knowing that you demonstrated your attitude in the death and resurrection of the Son of God. You showed your willingness to participate in the equation of our lives. To suffer worse. And to show that you do not take lightly the suffering of human beings. Nor do you take lightly making it meaningful. And give us the conviction today that this is not in vain. We pray in Christ's name.